Australians don't drink Fosters. Okay. The myth of Fosters, man. It pisses me off. It's like, oh, I have a Foster. I, the last time I saw a Fosters, I was in Germany. <laughs> Hello, intimidating outback weirdos and Mogan David extra heavy Malaga wine with soda water and lime juice and all the ships at sea. And welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today is, in her words, a film critic, author, and recovering academic. She's also, in my humble opinion, one of the foremost film historians of our time. She's a contributing editor at Film International, a columnist at Fangoria, and an adjunct professor in film and television at Deakin University. She's a two time Bram Stoker Award finalist who has published nine books on cult horror and exploitation cinema with an emphasis on gender politics, including the recently revised Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study, 1,000 Women in Horror, 1895 to 2018, and The Jalo Canvas, Art, Excess, and Horror Cinema. She has also contributed more audio commentaries and essays to great disc releases than you can shake a stick at, folks. It's our honor to welcome the great Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Hey, Alex. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for saying nice things about me. I, I mean, love this. I love it already. This is a positive experience. <laughs> it's kind of hard to not say great things about you. You've got this, you know, you've really carved out this this niche for yourself. And, uh, and you know, I've heard it said before, but I agree with it. When you see your name on the back of like a Blu-ray or a 4K, it, it that's like immediate street cred. Uh, and immediate, I want to buy it. So it's really a pleasure to have you on. Um, it's it's very nice of you to say so. <laughs> we will start by plugging, which isn't easy because you're so incredibly prolific. But I've been perusing the 1000 Women in Horror book, and it is really terrific. Walk us through you know, the, the premise of this one for, for those who have not yet purchased it and how you landed on this idea for, for how to how to write a book like this. So I've I published that in 2020. So it came mm. out just during during lockdown, which was a very right. strange experience. And it right. kind of brought together a whole bunch of different things that I'd been interested in. So I'd been working in, I'd already published a couple of books, you know, on a horror, cult film, exploitation film. But at the same time, I had a real interest in women's filmmaking. So I'd edited, mm-hmm. um, co-edited a book on Elaine May. Um, I'd done a big project on Australian directed. Uh, women's cinema from the 80s and 90s and and um, we had a program at the um, Melbourne International Film Festival that Michelle Carey took uh, I think last year 2022 mm-hmm. uh, to um, to the Museum of the Moving Image in New York so I had these different strands of interest and really 1000 in women horror in horror brought them together you know it, it really was like uh, you know I'm interested in women in the film industry I'm interested in horror cult film, exploitation film. And that book just felt like a really organic way to bring those ideas together. And of course, the joke of the book is that there's more than a thousand women in horror. You know, it's really a provocation more right. than it is a kind of, can you believe there's 1000 women in horror? Right. Which if you look at like horror listicles about women film directors in horror in particular, it's like, can you believe that women make horror? It's like, <laughs> not, you know, yes, there's more than 10, there's more than a thousand. You know, there's, right. there's a lot of women in horror. And I wanted the book to kind of feel as, silly in a way as doing a book called 1000 men in horror right so maybe a little self-defeating but you know it worked (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and well, and I mean, and, and it's great because it's this you you're able to to do a lot of things at once in it because it is you know first and foremost it's kind of an encyclopedia and it's organized like that, but there's also lots of space in here for critical essays. There are interviews in the book. You're a, you're able to sort of take in everything, but the kitchen sink approach to it, which must have been sort of freeing when you realized you could do that. Yeah, look, I, I come to it um, very much as a uh, somebody with an interest in film history. So having a very kind of broad historical overview was really important to me and also having right. a very broad geographical overview. Like I didn't just right. want it to be the US and Britain. Um, right. So I really wanted to dig into that kind of global sense of horror and, and a historical sense of horror at the same time. And I, I published this book with um, an, uh, an indie publisher called Bear Manor Media, um, who I have to say were just unquestioning. They really, mm. he, you know, the, my, my editor Ben just gave me free reign to really wow. just sort of let loose, uh, which is a yeah. very rare thing in publishing. <laughs> or really, it's a rare thing in criticism in general, I yeah. think. So I was really, it was like a, a perfect match of a publisher with a project. Um, and without that support, I don't think I would have, you know, with another publisher, I don't think I would have had as much wiggle room yeah, to experiment the way that I did. That's amazing. Um, and then the Rape Revenge Films book, you recently revisited and revised 10 years after its publication. Uh, this kind of sounds like a dream to me. Like, I would love to take another crack at a published book. What was that process like for you to 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 go back to something that was already out in the world? It's a big one. And I think a lot of it has to do with, like you said, you know, any kind of book project, you always have regrets right you always want to go back and, and revisit and, and you know yep. you're never finished any kind of right. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a, a book project but a, a major project you always have that oh I could have done this but with that project in particular and I think because of the quite delicate subject matter it was even more uh poignant I guess mm. to revisit it so mm -hmm. personally it's quite an important project for me because it um it was actually it actually started off as my master's thesis and oh, wow. I, I have a background I have a background in music journalism and then I went to academia from there and um, I'd written my, my thesis and only two people read it. And my ego, mm -hmm. I think after coming from journalism, my ego was a little bruised <laughs> and that's why, so I actually published, I published my first book before I, I published my first book before I published my, before I did my PhD, because I was like, right. I want more than, you know, and yeah. I want more than two people to read this. And yeah. It actually was really important for me, that process, because it made me realize that with the particular subject matter that that book is about, especially, I want to talk to 15-year-old boys more than I want to talk to 50-year-old academics. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that I want to reach, right. I'm not going to reach in academia. And that was a really right. big turning point for me. Um, and I think since then, you know, my I've, the goal has always been to sort of balance more sort of public-facing Mm -hmm. criticism so you know the great stuff that i'm that i can do at fangoria which is a, a mm -hmm. gift um mm -hmm. is is just as meaningful to me as the stuff that i do you know in, in a more kind of academic context and and just you know rape revenge it's a, it's, a, it's a conversation that is very hard to have and and um there aren't that many books on it yeah. um and it is something that i'm constantly surprised by the conversation that that book provokes yeah yeah, well, and it's an ever-evolving conversation too, which I, I would imagine made it sort of irresistible to go back to. Right. I mean, the the big thing, I guess, was the whole, um, you know, wherever you stand on on it as a as a kind of cultural phenomenon. Uh, Me too was a really big turning point. Right. The conversations about rape revenge film uh, and gender politics and gender, you know, violence and harassment more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in film so the the biggest i mean the, the the second edition is actually quite heavily reworked 
uh, mm. from the first one. It has a whole new chapter on women-directed rape prevention films, mm-hmm. which again isn't isn't a new phenomenon. I think we think of that as a kind of Me Too thing, but you know that goes right back to. I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that Doris um, Doris Wishman's Bad Girls Go to Hell is a rape mm-hmm. prevention film. Um, I, I, I've made that yep. argument, so it's yep. it's not new. Um, but that is a conversation that I think was sparked again by by the you know the discourse surrounding Me Too was that people were kind of interested again yeah. I think in, in having those kind of revisiting those conversations in light of more current affairs. All right, so Alex, what year did you choose to talk about with us, and why? Unhesitatingly, nineteen seventy one. Uh, without like, <laughs> it has long been my favorite year of film. Um, and even now, like I'll be, you know, revisiting an older movie and it's like, this is great. I wonder what year it was. And it's almost like a running gag with me now. It's like, oh, 1971. It, it's just, I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's, um, I don't know, you know, I can sort of, there's sort of, you know, geopolitical things we can speculate about, you know, the kind of rise of new Hollywood or, um, you know, the, the influence of the, of, of you know, the French new wave, you know, we can kind of speculate, but mm-hmm. Also, I think there's just an energy like this sort of this new decade. Things yeah. are extremely bleak in the world. You know, we, we tend to talk about things like the Vietnam War through the through the lens of uh, the United States. But obviously, you know, Australia was heavily involved. Other countries were heavily involved. Vietnam was heavily involved. You know, like so there's this sort of global energy in the early 70s that's kind of wild, really wild, dangerous energy in this new decade that I think really manifests in cinema in a really kind of poetic, tangible, almost visceral kind of way. Well, we are going to talk about the the various ways in which that happens. But before we do, we're going to get a little more into that bleak world that you mentioned. Uh, Here's Mike with headlines. Yeah, at a bit of a distance, 1971 looks pretty terrible, right? (laughs) Yes. Damn. Richard Nixon was president. That's mm-hmm. one thing about these 1970s shows. I get a chance to make fun of Richard Nixon. God uh, bless. He was paranoid. He had a very prickly ego. He was corrupt as he could possibly be. Openly racist and anti-Semitic. Terrible grudge holder. Mm-hmm. Decent on China. Thank <laughs> God we don't have guys like that running for president anymore. Am I Woo! Right? Thank goodness. All right. Dodge well, the bullet. <laughs> Nixon ordered a wage and price freeze for 90 days in 1971. Like, do you, does anybody even know what that means anymore? No. I feel like that's like he like nobody could get, you know, an increase in. They couldn't ch- charge more for anything. And you also couldn't get a raise at work for 90 days. Right. This is generally not thought of as a good idea in modern economics. It just kind of takes problems you've already got and gives them time to mm-hmm. turn into catastrophes. Mm-hmm. It's also very, very socialist. Like, as a concept, it's very socialist, and it's not the kind of thing that, you know, we would even consider anymore. Like, Bernie Sanders wouldn't suggest that, you know, so it's always fun to sort of, like, read Nixon talking about that stuff. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he still sucked. Mm -hmm. In 1971, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, even when he did socialist shit, he fucked it up. He did the wrong shit. Ugh. In 1971, Mary Ann Harrison Lindsay switched her party affiliation from Republican to Democrat in a desperate attempt by her husband to maintain relevancy. John Lindsay wasn't going to be mayor of Gotham for much longer or mayor of anything but his own little cannoli. Yeah. To hear some fantastic episodes about John Lindsay and the movies, check out Fun City Cinema. (laughs) Seriously, if you like movies made in the 70s, you should listen to that show. 
top shelf Thank shit. Thank you, Mike, for plugging our other show. <laughs> I know one of the guys who yeah. worked on it. In barely relevant but fascinating world news, Britain's education secretary Margaret Thatcher ended complimentary school milk for little freeloading bastards once they got to an age where they should be able to take care of themselves, really. Giving these kids milk, it's like they're on the dole already, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what are they still doing in school at the age of eight? Eight. That yeah. was when she cut them off from milk. Eight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. D.B. Cooper disappeared in 1971, and if you don't know who that is, welcome to podcasts. You must be new here. <laughs> and finally, uh, I can't personally get out of a 1971 news segment without mentioning the Attica Prison Rebellion when over 1,200 men took 39 hostages and control of D-Yard at Attica Prison in upstate New York in a desperate plea for human rights. I have said a lot about this event already uh, on this podcast <laughs> and also made a whole ass uh, documentary. Yeah, you did direct a whole ass film about it. It's true. I do have a whole documentary that is still on Max called Betrayal at Attica. Um, for now, let me just say peace to Liz Fink and all the brothers who were fighting the same fight in 1971 that we're fighting now. Uh, this is still a big part of my life. I got a text from one of the brothers like two hours ago. Of course. We can do better. It seems like that's always the button on the headlines, right? It is indeed. Dude, I can't leave it like this. Let's do one more. Okay. November 2nd, 1971, a glowing mushroom-shaped craft visited the Johnson family of Delphos, Kansas, and took their son for a little trip around the yard or the solar system or his rectum or something. I don't know, but it left a big patch of, of burned grass where nothing would grow forever and ever after that. And if you touched it, it burned you. You might not believe their story of alien visitation, but the National Enquirer did. So who are we supposed to believe? Some liberal skeptic or the hardworking journalists and these nice people from Kansas? <laughs> Shout out to the Johnson family. That's headlines. Thank you, Mike. The truth is out there. <laughs> It is indeed. <laughs> in, in Delphos, Kansas, if right. you can fucking find it. <laughs> to be specific. <laughs> indeed. All right, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, you ready to do a top five? I sure am. All right, so we did our little chat beforehand, and we decided we're going to do a sort of a, a thematically. Uh, uh, it, it, the list is going to flow. It's not a ranked list, it's not an alphabetized list. It's just one movie with the, the one that feels right to come next. So, with that in mind, what is the first film on your top five for 1971? This is one of my all time favorite films. It's uh, Alan Arkin's Little Murders. You got it this time? No, I don't know. It was in the other wing. You could have been killed. I get shot at every day. Jules Pfeiffer's first play is now director Alan Arkin's first film. Every crime has its own pattern of logic. If everything is so hopeless, well, why do anything? Okay. Why get married? Well, you said you wanted to. Little Murders, a terrifying comedy. Adapted from a play, and the screenplay was written by, by Jules Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. um, it really taps in, I think, to this kind of zeitgeist vibe so the, the film is sort of set in in a, in a new york that is 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 it is just chaotic so gun yes. violence uh reigns supreme <laughs> imagine such a thing yeah. um you know there's like the power keeps cutting out there's like fi financial turmoil everything is kind of bleak and chaotic and and gun violence in particular is like the central um kind of theme i guess of, of this film uh, and it's it's remarkably contemporary i think for mm -hmm. that reason alone it's, mm -hmm. it's it's still a very chilling watch it's a black comedy very 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 black comedy Pitch black, <laughs> um, just like it, black as night so ellie gould is my favorite actor hands down mm. no question always has been ever since i was a kid um yeah i just adore him 
And he had a kind of one-two punch in 71. So he, he approaches 71 with things like, you know, he's got these big award nominations for Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Um, you know, he did MASH in, in 1970 uh, with Donald Sutherland, of course, who also appears in an incredible cameo in Little Murders. Yes. Um, so Gould was on the, uh, the Broadway stage play in 1967 of Little Murders and he oh. bought the rights. Oh. And he, um, so it's very much an, an Elliot Gould project. So he kind yeah. of was like, he was the person, you know, he, he formed a production company the first person he took it to was Jean-Luc Godard, who was really into it. He was really, really into it. And he was going to do it his, as his, like, wow. big American English language breakthrough starring Elliot Gould. Wow. But they had problems with the screenplay. And, and Godard walked when he was really disappointed with the screenplay. So they ended up taking it back to Jules Pfeiffer, who did his own screenplay. Alan Arkham had since then been working on stage in Little Murders. And he, has mm. back, he had background, you know, he'd made short films. He had a background as a theatrical production. He'd not directed a feature film, I don't believe, by this point, but he was sort of like Correct. a logical person to direct the film uh, for, for Gould. So they gave they gave Alan Arkin, again, who also has an incredible cameo mm-hmm. in this film. I love this film so deeply. I, it's just so profound to me. Um, as I said earlier, you know, this was like a, a big year for Elliot Gould. This is the same year that he did another film that I was going to mention. You know, it was sort of a toss-up toss between both of them, <laughs> which is um, he was in Igmar Bergman's The Touch, in 1971 mm. as well, which was, I believe, the first time an American actor had been in a Bergman film. So it was a big right. deal. He also looks great. He's got a beard. I digress. But Little Murders <laughs> is the one that it's like if I had to, if, if somebody said to me, why is Elliot Gould your favorite actor? Little Murders yeah. is the film that I would show them because yeah. it's it's dark, it's funny, it's sexy, and it's so unapologetically political in a way that that is still really chilling now. Like I, I've seen this film so many times and there's a there's a, a soliloquy that he delivers sitting at a kitchen table and oh, the God. action for the third kind of act of this film really kicks off yeah. after that soliloquy. And it chills me to the bone every single time. It shocks me every single time. And the urgency and the relevance of this film with this, you know, how do you how do you live? How do you find peace? How do you love? in a world full of little murders, you know, full yeah. of violence. There's a couple of homophobic things that date it that I can't sort of make excuses for, like they're kind of gross. Otherwise, I think it's pretty much a perfect film. Yeah, yeah. No, I I really love this one. And this was one that, you know, that I did spend some time with in the, the Fun City Cinema book because it's part of, there really was this little kind of cluster in the early 70s as New York was going into the toilet of these sort of cries of despair, dark New York comedies, things like this, like where's Papa? Um, you know, I would put prisoner of second Avenue in that same bin. Definitely. Um, you know, these, these movies that were all about sort of being in New York and they're all almost to a one, like, you know, written by, and starring New Yorkers. Like they were not the sort of like outsiders sneering at it. This is sort of like, no, we live here and it's fucked up. Um, but this is, this is by far the darkest of that bunch. Like, because it's, it's, you know, the other ones are sort of kind of grounded in a reality, like tweaked up a notch or two. And (laughs) this one is tweaked up like 12 notches. Um, but it's, but it's so funny and so bleak and everyone in it is just is is there's such a specific type of acting that they're that they're doing here um that's it's grounded in a reality but again it's just it's a little bit more 
Um, and I think that really speaks to, to Arkin's gifts as a filmmaker that like so many actor turned directors, he was, he was really good with actors. You're getting some really terrific performances in this film. It's funny. I, I first saw this film in high school. I had a teacher show us this on the same day that they showed us the, um, the Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel version of Rhinoceros. The, oh my um, God. The, <laughs> oh my God. Who directed it, but the film adaptation of the yeah. um, Eugene Esco play. And I, yeah. I do put them together. Like I really think of them. Wow. Maybe it's just because of naturally the way that I saw them. But yeah. how do you how do you live in a world that's gone mad? And I, yes. I think that that's as profound a question today as it, as it was then. And I think um, both of those films in a way, I, I think they deserve a lot more kind of cult attention than they mm. get. They're not exactly obscure, but at the same time, right. I, I still think that they deserve. Oh, look, I mean, just do it. If, you, if you've not seen Little Murders, do a YouTube search for Donald Sutherland existential <laughs> wedding scene and it yes. will change your life. I, I would <laughs> objectively, I think it's the hottest that Donald Sutherland has ever been on film, <laughs> which is a big thing for me to say big that. Thing. Like, big, that's, big move. That's a, right. Yeah. yeah. No, track this one out. It was very hard to see for a while. Uh, but there's a very good Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago. I want to say from Indicator. I could be mistaken on that. And I'm pretty sure that Sam Sam Dean does the commentary mm-hmm. on that, um, which yeah. is a perfect blend of uh, critic and film. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really good one. All right, Alex, what is the next movie on your top five for 1971? Well, interestingly, we have another film that is a black comedy, another film that's very New York, uh, yes. and another film that also has in a bit part the great Doris Roberts who plays um, <laughs> Elliot Gould's character, Alfred's mother in Little yes. Murders. She turns up as, a, as an evil housekeeper in yes. Elaine May's A New Leaf. Walter Matthau and Elaine May. All right, Henrietta, I'm ready for you now. Take a deep breath, hold your nose, and let go. You'll die laughing at the two of them in A New Leaf from Paramount Pictures. Starring uh, show mascot Walter Matthau. And <laughs> God, if we we could put together a whole episode of clips of us talking about Walter Matthau. Um, and, and yes. you'd be right to. <laughs> and, and Elaine May, uh, not only writing and directing, but co-starring. It's it, this, this, when I pulled up the IMDb's for each of the movies we're going to talk about, which is sort of a pre-show ritual, I like my jaw kind of hit the floor because I looked. It's like I know ratings have changed their meetings for a while. This movie's rated G. This does not strike me. <laughs> I mean, they don't say wow. fuck in it, and nobody's naked, but boy, this it's is so not a G-rated dark. movie. <laughs> it is so dark. Um, I mean, this is it. This is you know the. The, the, the legend that is Elaine yeah. May as a filmmaker really sort of starts here, yeah. I guess. Um, this film has a very complex history, complicated mm-hmm. history, as does the great Elaine May, who mm-hmm. is, you know, the queen. Um, as I said, mm-hmm. you know, I co-edited a book about Elaine May as a filmmaker uh, out through Edinburgh University Press called Refocus, the films of Elaine May. Um, she's an extraordinary filmmaker and it's really Something that hasn't been acknowledged. You know, she really is this really, not just an important woman filmmaker, but an important filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially through the light of Ishtar in particular, you know, she sort of became a punchline for decades. I'm a huge Isabella Gianni. So Elliot Gould, Isabella Gianni, they're my favorite actors and actresses. So I saw Ishtar when I was a kid because I love Isabella Gianni. It's the only reason I saw it. And I loved it. I just, I just unironically loved it. I thought it was a great film. I was like a teenager 
And I just, I couldn't figure out what the hate for Ishtar was. And it's only as I've gotten older that I've kind of understood the more complex aspects of that. Mm -hmm. But even back, you know, that Ishtar was famously, you know, quote unquote troubled production, you know, the the schedule blew out, the budget blew out. Same stuff happened on A New Leaf, quite, quite famously. So I think the idea was, you know, Mike Nichols uh, and Elaine May, of course, were like this famous comedy duo in the 50s. Absolutely hilarious. Please fall down that YouTube well if you've not discovered the work of May and Nichols yet. Yes. hilarious comedy duo. So Mike Nichols had done The Graduate in 67, and I think there was maybe an idea that Elaine May, you know, she, she could be like the lady Mike Nichols right. and, you know, right. kind of do like lady, lady The Graduate. But, of course, she's a different person. So she yeah. this she adapted the screenplay. She's a great screenwriter. She adapted the screenplay for a new leaf from a, a short story called The Green Heart by Jack Ritchie. Huge pressure from Paramount to cast a big woman star. And she was like, no, 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 the, the man is, the, it's, the, it's a film about a man. It's a film about a male character. So she was sort of forced into playing the female role herself. Um, and, you know, it, it was just a shit show basically. Like, the, as I said, you know, the, the schedule blew out, the, the budget blew out. Um, she had final cut on the contract, but Robert Evans, the legendary, notorious Robert Evans, mm-hmm. ended up taking it from her and he recut it completely. Her version yeah. was like three hours long. It had like... There was like a, a murder plot in there. Like um, I think there was like a blackmail plot and uh, they ended up, this is crazy story where they, she ended up um, suing. She wanted to have her name taken off as director yeah. and they went to court. And I, my, I believe that the judge basically had to decide whether the film, whether the Robert Ever- Evans cut was funny or not. That's what, <laughs> that's what the judge's decision came down to. And the judge was like, no, this is really fucking funny. Maybe, maybe they didn't say it like that, but it was like, right. so she couldn't, so she lost the case. I mean, it's a crazy story. It's yeah. not the film that Elaine May wanted. So it's it's kind of hard, I guess, to look through the lens of quote unquote auteur theory or whatever the fuck that means anyway. But um, it's still an incredible film. It's still very, right. very funny. Matteo, you know, Walter Matteo was really at his peak. I mean, you look at yeah. his list of like Golden Globe nominations for Best Actor. It's like 66, 68, 71, 72, 74, 75, 80, 81. Bam. He, right. he was... The man knew how to do his job, right? <laughs> yes, yes. He understood and the assignment, as they say. He really did. And he's on fire here. He's he's absolutely horrible as this man who <laughs> he's just a rich prick. A rich prick baby. Like, the, that's the thing Ooh. that I love about him, his performance <laughs> in this, is he's so fucking helpless. And there's right. such, that is a comic vein that does not get mined, I don't think, enough uh he's he's so pathetic and also a piece of shit and that's like such a nice mixture so the basic plot is that he decides that he's going to marry a rich woman and kill her that's the plot um (laughs) and and he needs and he meets elaine may's character henrietta who's a genuine eccentric she's like a, a botanist academic um and and it's all about that's the story. Like it's, it's yeah. not a complicated story at all. But the performances in this, I wrote a book chapter on Elaine May um, as an actor uh, called Elaine May's Hands. And mm. the first scene that you see her in in this film, she's in the background at a tea party and she's sitting there nervously hunched up in the corner with a teacup and a, 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 a saucer. And the way that her hands move in this scene, it's like how do you how yeah. do you build a character around? hands like she's yeah she's such an incredible comic presence yeah. aside from being a great director aside from being a great writer just her physical presence is extraordinary so you put elaine may and walter matthau in the same shot you kind of can't fail like i mean this right. film is electric 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so dark. It's so funny and it's so confident. I mean, that is a thing that I think is always really telling when you're talking about a feature directorial debut, like she knows exactly what she's doing with every frame of this thing. Um, you know, whether it's a, a boulderized version or not, uh, it still is. It's tremendously entertaining and really funny, really funny. My God, she's so funny. Um, I should also mention, I'm going to do a preemptive plug. Uh, we'll be doing an episode in June when our friend Carrie Corgan's uh, Elaine May biography is coming out. Uh, so if you like Elaine May, that is one to, uh, to keep uh, an eye out for as well. Um, Alex, what then is the third movie on your top five for 1971? Now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I mean, it's, it's still dark, but the, my mm-hmm. next film is, uh, Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. He thought he could find peace and refuge. Instead, he found that a man can't hide forever. I care. This is where I live. I will not allow violence against this house. Sam Peckinpah, who uncaged the wild bunch, now unleashes Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs. Which is a film I I adore. I love this film with every fiber of my being and i will fight with a knife in my teeth when the <laughs> sam peck and pa gender wars come on the side of straw dogs i i and i i think it's a really great example in that of, of a kind of, of, of an argument that is that that filmmakers who aren't particularly feminist can mm-hmm. sometimes make really progressive films i'm mm-hmm. i'm not necessarily going out there to say that sam peck and pa was a friend to w- women mm-hmm but this film, I think. But he knew bad men, right? And that's like that's the, maybe that's the maybe it, like right? a little too deep, maybe right. a little too well. well right. Yeah. I I think this is an extraordinary film. Um, I wrote about it obviously um, in my book on rape prevention film. Sure. Um, which was a really quite an extraordinary experience actually like digging deep into this film and really researching it because it's a film that I'd always loved but never really understood why I loved it mm-hmm. um so it's adapted from a novel by a guy called Gordon M Williams uh, the novel's called The Siege of Trenches Farm from from 1969 and the the, the book was like a hit it was instantly like you know who are we going to get to make the film originally they wanted Polanski to do it which is a whole okay. other like <laughs> There's a whole other conversation. Mm. What would straw dogs be like if Roman Polanski? What conversation would we be having about straw dogs <laughs> if it was directed I, by Roman like, Polanski? I, I can't. You can't see, listener, the face that I'm making, but I, I, I would not like to have that conversation. This conver- <laughs> that conversation is exactly why two hard baskets are invented, in my opinion. Right. Like I just right. that's just too hard. So we could just leave that and move on. Yes. <laughs> Peckinpah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of being quite crude here in my, my reductive sort of synopsis here, but Peckinpah was finding it quite hard to get studio directing jobs in the US. Right. So going to the UK to do Straw Dogs was a good fit for him. He rewrote it quite heavily. Um, mm-hmm. Gordon Williams, who wrote the novel, hated this film, hated it. Mm. The, the rape scene is a completely new addition. Peckinpah oh, was wow. also really strongly influenced by a guy called Robert Ardry, who was an author who wrote a couple of books called, uh, he wrote a book called The Ameri- uh, the African Genesis and The Territorial Imperative. And the argument of these books is, is it's very Peckinpahian. He, he kind of argued that, that man was a kind of primal carnivore with a kind of mm. instinctive 
kind of feral territorial spirit. And you can really okay. see how that comes through in, totally. in Straw Dogs. Um, you know, so you have, um, you know, D- Dustin Hoffman, of course, has come to this film quite early in his career off that sort of one-two punch of The Graduate and, and Midnight Cowboy. Uh, but I think for me this film, and maybe it's my, my particular, maybe it's my gender bias, just being a woman watching this film, but also um, being interested in, 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 the, in women's work in, in film, mm-hmm. Susan George is the mm-hmm. essence of what makes this film tick. The rape scene is very, very difficult. And and if you unpack why, um, for me what makes it so interesting is that it does what rape in film doesn't like to do, which it doesn't make it morally legible. Mm. Cinema and and television really like to have, you know, the scenario of like a a stranger down down an alley because it's very easily legible. You don't have to unpack the complexities of, oh, maybe they knew each other, maybe they used to go out. That's when it starts to get ethically a little tricky. And film doesn't mm-hmm. like that. We like it to be very, very clear cut because it's mm-hmm. hard. It's really hard to talk about this stuff. Peckinpah doesn't do that. He makes it very tricky. So the the the, the sex scene has, if you've not seen this film, uh, the rape scene, sorry, has two, um, two, two men are involved and one of them is her ex-boyfriend. And the question of... of um, of consent is very dicey in that first mm-hmm. encounter. She clearly does say no. She clearly fights. But at one point she does seem to, it's very hard to say. I wouldn't say that she consents, but right. there is a dynamic there that is very, very difficult to, to map There's out. an element to her performance that is impossible to describe. Right, you know, that exactly. Can, that is only like, that is why movies are something different than anything else. Right. Exactly. There's some element, it's just, mm-hmm. ah, that, mm-hmm. ah. It's so hard. It's everything that rape on film usually isn't. It's mm-hmm. very, yeah. very hard to unpack. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. Um, the the second encounter clearly is, you know, how we are more kind of, uh, right. it, how we expect rape to look on film. Susan George has a really, she she loved making this film. And I think that that actually needs to be taken into account. And she has spoken very, very clearly and very intelligently about the rape scene in particular. Peckinpah, according to her, wanted to make it a lot more physically violent than it was. And mm. she begged him not to. She begged him. She said, you hired me because I'm good at my job. How the fuck about you trust me? Just mm. shoot my eyes. Just show my face. Just shoot my eyes. And when you look at the second half of this rape sequence, look at the ca- the camera focus. He 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 listens to her. He mm. actually listened to her, and he does do what she asks him to do. And it makes the scene. It yeah. really makes the scene. And I think that um, Susan George's own experience and the way that she's talked about this particular film is often left out of conversations about this movie. But sure. when you approach that sequence through her perspective, um, I think it makes a very complicated, very difficult scene in a very complicated, difficult film a bit more, maybe not comprehensible, but clearer or legible, mm-hmm. you know, a bit mm-hmm. more legible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. I was just today listening to a new episode of the Pure Cinema podcast where where they had Quentin Tarantino on. Uh, talking about this film as part of a, a, a series of films that he's programmed at the New Vista Theater and echoed the sentiment that you just had. He said, you know, you could say whatever you want about Dustin Hoffman. This is Susan George's movie. This is her right. performance. She 100%. is the center of this movie. Um, and it's and it's true. And I think that once you sort of are looking at it through that lens, it really shifts the way that 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 you see the film. The, there's an original movie poster for this. It might be the UK quad. I'm going from memory here. 
uh, the nerds amongst your listeners, I'm sure, will be onto me if I get this wrong. But it's um, it's basically like her tits. She's wearing like a white um, a white top, a tight mm-hmm. white top with no bra, mm-hmm. and the poster is like from the neck down to like sort of her stomach up, and then mm-hmm. like there's little like four. I think there's four little kind of uh, illustrated scenes from the film around it. I mean, the, the film literally is pre- is promoted as as a story that takes place on a woman's body. Right. Like the, the women's bodies are the forum for the action that Straw Dog is based on. And it's communicated mm-hmm. quite explicitly in the promotional material for the film. Yeah. You kind yeah. of have to be really mm-hmm. going out of your way, I think, to push a particular argument if you want to downplay Susan George's role in Straw Dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. There's no clean transition out of that. So I'm just going to just barrel right through to what what is the fourth film on your top five for 71? Look, I basically put this here because I, I I love the film and it is one of my top five films of the year, but I felt that this we kind of probably would need a bit of a palate cleanser. Palate cleanser. Here we go. <laughs> Cleanse the palate. I want to talk about the ab- abdominable, I can never say, I always say like the abdom- ab- abdominal, uh, <laughs> the abominable Dr. Fives. I can't ever get that title out. I have a PhD <laughs> and I still can't say the name of that. Dr. Fives, who samples the finer things. In his own inimitable way, and experiments with fascinating instruments of death. The Watson, the Qatar, the ten curses visited upon the pharaohs before Exodus. Nine shall die, nine eternities in doom. I love this film. I love Vincent Price. This is my favorite Vincent Price uh, film. It's wonderful. Unarguably a perfect film. It's so it's 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 so beautifully structured. It's so clever. Um, from a kind of film history point of view, um, I wrote about this in my PhD, which um, I wrote, uh, turned into a book, um, and the book and the, the thesis were uh, on masks in horror, which mm. weirdly there's not been done about but I still find hmm. bewildering that my book is like the only book on masks in horror film that's why kind of an obvious it's crazy yeah. right yeah. so I have a whole section on Dr. Fives um for obvious reasons so I mean obviously the you know the history of masks in horror goes right back to the you know early cinema you know we have the amazing Lon Chaney Jr uh sorry mm-hmm. Lon Chaney with the um you know Phantom of the Opera and you know masks have a very you know Abel Gantz did a film called The Masks of Horror you know it goes right, right back right. pre pre-cinema Masks have always right. been a part of horror. But in the 1970s, the mask really codifies as a part of horror. And uh, that really is kind of, that really pivots, I think, around Texas Chainsaw Massacre in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we have this quite dramatic shift in the way that masks in horror function. Dr. Fives, the first Dr. Fives film, and the second one in 1972, I think, to a similar degree, but mostly the first one is a really interesting one because I do think it's actually a very 70s film. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at it in this history of this sort of pre, pre-Texas chainsaw masks um, in, in horror because it's not explicitly gory, but the way that this film engages with the concept of gore right. is actually quite intense. Like it's right. sort of, it really sort of, you know, there's it kind of delights, I think, in this kind of visceral horror that mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily show. The, the film itself is quite Baroque, I think, in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, and very camp. I mean, even by Vincent Price standards, I think this one really pushes the <laughs> camp envelope. Um, but there is a violence to this film that is so 
visceral and I, I really I really love that I really do think that it's a kind of underrated film historically in that sense and it's also a film that does um, one of my favorite things that films very rarely address which is um, friendships between men and women the relationship mm. between Fibes and his assistant Volnavia mm-hmm. I think is one of the great platonic male-female mm-hmm. relationships in film history again I will fight with a knife in my teeth to defend <laughs> that statement I love this film. I think it's beautiful. I think it's funny. I think it's sexy. Yeah. Um, the structure is beautiful. You know, the we have that kind of body count kill and all the kills. You know, Fives is basically like killing all the people responsible for the botched surgery that kill his wife. That's the pre- right. that's the premise. Um, and it's the, each kill is based around the ten plagues of Egypt. So there's you know frogs and boils and locusts, death of the firstborn. It's great. You know, it's this really lovely structure. Um, I, I think it's kind of a perfect horror film. Yeah. No, I mean, and and I love that, you know, I think one of the ways in which it's kind of ahead of its time is in that sort of the idea of the the serial killer, basically, um, with a gimmick um, that, you know, which, of course, became, you know, a huge cornerstone of 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 serial killer thrillers to come seven being an obvious example the other one that i think dr five's warp so seven could run i'm yes exactly (laughs) um but also even you know just two years later vincent price does theater of blood um which i think is sort of structurally and tonally similar where you know he's killing all of the the theater critics with the shakespearean methods um what do you I know this is a huge question, but what was the specific magic of Vincent Price? And why have we not had anyone who fills that role in sort of contemporary horror cinema? Or have we, and I'm just not thinking of them. I can only speak uh, subjectively for myself. Of course. Um, but there, there is a warmth mm. about Vincent Price that is unparalleled. And what mm. I find fascinating is that He's camp, but he's never ironic. You know, right. I think I think he could. You know, he's he's sort of like a a, a pre pre postmodern pre ironic. You know what I mean? Like there's a yeah. there's a kind there's a warmth and a kindness to his yes. campness that I don't know could exist yeah. now. I, I think everything has to you, to you have to be camp. You know, to be that kind of excessive and camp mm-hmm. brings with it a kind of irony. Mm-hmm. But but. Price was bereft of irony. There was no yeah. irony there whatsoever. There was a knowingness, but it was never an, an ironic knowingness. And that's the magic. And it is really indefinable. And I think it really, wow. he he embodied it in such a, in such a gentle way. And, and, and again, you know, just his physical presence, you know, this physically huge man. Yeah. Um, but this gentleness and this contrast between dark and light, and power and weakness that that was just that was just in his face. I, yeah. I just um, I just think he's one of the great film giants, not just in horror but right. in general. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it's those tensions and those paradoxes, um, but the, this warmth and this generosity and this kindness, which are all things that work in opposition to the spirit of horror. Right. And I think within that tension, there's a kind of electricity or a spark. Yeah, you said indefinable, and then you just proceeded to define it so eloquently. <laughs> like, congratulations, you did it. Thank you. Um, okay, but we can't leave this movie without at least throwing a quick shout out 
to the 80s cop movie police captain who just happens to be a British man from 1971. <laughs> the police captain in this movie was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Every time he comes on screen, he's cursing everybody out. <laughs> and he's just like walking away. He doesn't know how to drive his own car. Like it just completely fucking that character in particular. I was just like, this didn't need to be hilarious. <laughs> like you've already got a good movie happening here. Yeah. He didn't need to be drawing attention, but he's a hilarious yeah. every time he comes on screen he's like i mean he's dialed up to 11 in like spinal yeah. tap turns like the <laughs> film is already pretty excessive and then he just comes in and it's like it's almost like vincent price is like what is this guy doing he's like chewing the scenery <laughs> that's my scenery he's chewing brown right. scenery <laughs> and you're right. joseph cotton trying joseph cotton trying to keep it you know <laughs> kind of try to keep it kind of sort of adult and normal right and it's like no right. mate you're in the wrong film for that yeah <laughs> All right, Alexandra Heller Nicholas, this this brings us to the final slot in your top five, uh, where you've cheated a bit and made it a tie, and that's fine. We'll allow it because it's a really good tie. So what what is your final pair of selections for your top five? Well, I did cheat because I'm Australian, and white Australia <laughs> is uh, it was it has a convict history. Um, so we're all, you know, white Australian uh, that I am. I am, I am, I am from con convict blood. I am a criminal. So I picked two. Uh, <laughs> we have walkabout and wake in fright. Um, where do we even begin? So, oh my God, there's so much to say about right. both of these movies. We just have to start the podcast. Over. <laughs> so both well, of the, these films the connective tissue. At, yeah. Right. They both premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in the same year. I think mm. there was like a three days between them. Um, mm -hmm. when they played at, at Cannes, which is interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. We tend to think about Australian film history really starting with these two films, but, of course, it goes right back. You know, the, uh, ostensibly the argument is, is that the first feature film ever was an Australian film from 1906 called The Story of the Kelly Gang. That is still debated, but that's broadly accepted. Um, you know, there were Australian films in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. There was a film called uh, Jetta in, the, in 1955, which was the first film uh, in Australia shot in colour that also played at the Cannes Film Festival. The actor Chips Rafferty, who plays Jock Crawford in Waking Fright, the kind of sheriffy friendly cop mm -hmm. guy, he was a huge movie star here. He emerged in the 50s alongside a gentleman called Peter Finch, who you might know, who hey. would go on to become very, very successful in Hollywood. Yes. Um, Chips Rafferty stayed here. So um, these films are important, however, because they really sparked the, the Australian new wave in, in sure. the 1970s. And that's that's what really kind of kicked it in. So the Australian new wave, you know, things like Peter Weir, uh, Cars at 8 Paris, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. The 70s was a big, big deal in Australia. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because these two films were both uh, made by non-Australians. Right. Um, very important. Now, this again, this wasn't unique. Um, Powell and Pressburger had made a film in the mid-60s called They're a Weird Mob about Italian immigrants in Sydney. But something about these two films in the early 70s really sparked a conversation that really kind of re renewed Australian film culture really from, mm -hmm. from scratch effectively. Mm -hmm. um, in practical terms, what they share is an actor called John Mellion. Uh, he stars in both of them. He plays the father in Walkabout at the start of the film who, who, mm -hmm. um, who tries to kill his children and then kills himself. And he also plays the pub owner at the start in Wake and Fright. So John Mellion is a very renowned kind of Australian actor. He he has these really important roles in both of these films as a sort of almost like the kind of he's there when Alice goes through the the rabbit hole, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's sort of if you see John Mellion well and said, he's in Australia, yeah. just run because the shit's about out, to get real. Go, right? go, right? 
There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Walkabout. Just about the most different film you'll ever see. Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout, adapted from James Vance Marshall's 1959 novel of the same name, he does this on the back of The Man Who Fell to Earth. And he was passionate about this film. He really, really wanted to do it. And some critics have sort of said, oh, you know, it's, it's a film about England. You know, it's a film about, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. He was really, mm-hmm. he didn't come all the way out here to the middle of nowhere and make this film in really grueling conditions to make a right. film about British things. You know, he he had a genuine drive to make this film. We have, it's, I mean, it's a story of lost children. You know, this, there's a, a, a white boy and a white girl. Um, their, their father drives them out to the outback for a picnic. Um, he tries to kill the children, fails, and then kills himself. So they're left to make their own way home. Yeah. And they befriend an Aboriginal boy played by the late, great David Goldpillar, one of the great Australian actors um, in, in his first film. Um, Jenny Agatha is the teenage girl, exquisite. Uh, mm-hmm. The little boy, the, the characters don't have names, the little boy is played by uh, Rogue's son. Uh, Lucian, who is, to me, just such an incredible actor. He has that, if you've ever spent time with small children, yeah. they never shut up. They yes. never, ever shut up. It's just constant. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And that's what this kid does. And it's, I, I, every time I watch it, it's like I, you rarely see childhood so perfectly captured by a kid mm-hmm. on film. So the so Walkabout for me is worth it just for, for Luke Rogue's performance. It's a beautiful film. It's a challenging film. Um, it you know, it didn't go particularly well in Australia. I think there was, um, mm. with both Wake, Wake and Fright and Walkabout, there was a discomfort about, well, why are, why are people coming from overseas to show right. us what we look like? Right. Um, which in Wake and Fright was sort of went into overdrive. In northern Australia, there are 5,000 square miles of sand, scrub, and searing heat. A desolate, primitive place that can take a man and destroy They call it the Outback, rated R. So that, was, again, is another literary adaptation. Yeah. Um, Kenneth Cook wrote the novel in 1961. There was talk about a film of Wake in Fright in 1963 with Joseph Losey and Dirk Bogard, which blows oh, my mind. Wow. Blows my mind. Um, but, of course, it was Ted, Ted Kotcheff, the Canadian filmmaker who did First Blood, Weekend at Bernie's. So the film, I'm sure it's a weird filmography when you like when you put these three titles next to each other. Right, that was a weird, <laughs> weird filmography. Ted Kotcheff. I'm sorry, I didn't it mean it. It is. Know. It's no less weird than Joseph Losey doing it, right? Like, That's it's true. Like, uh... yeah. <laughs> um, and it's 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 again, it's sort of you know, it's it's it and walk about you know that little boy lost. It's a little boy yeah. lost story. You know, a, yeah. an English school teacher gets stuck in the outback. He's trying to get back to Sydney for for Christmas, and he gets stuck in a, a fictional town called the Yabba which is based on a town called Broken Hill and it was shot in Broken Hill too. But this is it this I'm watching this movie and I'm like this is Australia's deliverance. It's and insane, right? It must feel that way because I'm watch when I watched Deliverance, I was like that's fucked up. <laughs> but it also feels really true. <laughs> like I you know what I mean? Like right. that's not necessary. But I got some cousins 
that you know right and it's one of those things where it part of why it's so effective is because it's not totally it's because of the reality in it is that were people in 100. australia upset about like offended yeah, they were. or they were. It, it went very badly here and it actually <laughs> vanished the, the the history so oh, waking yeah. quite was ostensibly a lost film until right. the editor the editor found it in it's an amazing story the editor found it in 2004 after years of like decade of, of searching for it and it was finally restored and released in 2009. But the idea that it was a lost film is actually not true because I remember seeing it at school mm. and I've got friends that were school teachers that, that they remember teaching it. So there was one television broadcast in 1989 of a very kind of clapped out and it was edited, but a lot of schools and university libraries taped it off the television and it was used oh, wow. to teach. So wow. a lot of Australians of my generation had seen this before it was ostensibly found. It has a really interesting history. but. Um, the guy that showed it was this sort of, um, he was sort of a, a kind of TV movie host called Bill Collins. It's on YouTube. It's worth chasing down because he guns it. He's this very sort of camp, gentle man. And he says, you know, this is basically a documentary. This is what, this is what Australians are. And this is what we don't, this is what we deny who we are. Wow. And um, he got hate mail from it. It turned up, you know, the Holly Report, Hollywood Reporter did a, a obit for Bill Collins when he died. And he, the, the controversy surrounding his uh, Wake and Fright screening was part of his obit. Wow. Um, it was you know, really kicked back, but it's so urgent. I mean, aside from the fact that Wake and Fright is a really good film, mm -hmm. um, it's the legacy is so strong. There's an incredible film that's about to play at South by Southwest for its international premiere. Uh, it's directed by two young Australian filmmakers called Jim Weir and Jack Clark. The film's called Bird Eater, and I really want to bring this to your attention if you can see it. Hopefully it'll get picked up for US release because Bird Eater taps into the, I mean, you know, there's a poster of Wake and Fright in the apartment at the wow. start. Okay. But it yeah. taps into this legacy of Australian masculinity and the concept of performativity. Okay. It's still really topical um, and it really taps into the gr grotesque, enormous horror story of colonialism in Australia. There's a very um, ugly history there that Australia is still failing, white Australia is still failing to reckon with. Mm. So walkabout, I find very. I always, for some reason, I always forget how he dies at the end. I don't, I don't know why, and then it always shocks me. It always mm. sits uncomfortably with me, and that's not a criticism uh, of Rogue at all. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't to know what would yeah. happen, um, but it's horrible. It's a really horrible, ugly truth about the country that I live in. Mm. So much of it felt so close to the surface in the unfortunate way that all of my Attica stuff feels close to the surface and you know, yeah. Great movie. Yeah. And this is my first time for walkabout. Really great. Oh, movie. interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I really guess I, going back to my point earlier, both, um, both walkabout and wake in fright, you know, the fact that they were made by non-Australians, that was a real provocation. So they didn't mm -hmm. go well here at all. Mm -hmm. um, there was real anger about it but it really did prompt that question it's like so you know if this isn't what australia is then show us what it tell us what it is and the answer you know the re responses that we got to that i think are really complex you know yeah. peter weir i think um was one of the first to kind of take that call you know things yeah. like yeah you know the, the cars at eight paris and and um picnic at hanging rock kind of continue a conversation i guess that these films started yeah yeah R really terrific all right, Alex, thank you so much for that excellent top five or top top six, I guess, as the case may be. Convict. <laughs>
Let's find out about the big doings of the entertainment business in the year 1971. Here's Mike with the Hollywood Minute. Hollywood freaks on the Hollywood scene. This is so good, man. I mean, this is like 71 requires a certain intellect to even be able to approach it, Mm -hmm. let alone like really appreciate it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like a lot of times what happens in these episodes is we talk about five really good, smart, deep movies. And then we get to the the Hollywood Minute and it's just sort of like, and here's all the fluffy bullshit that got some (laughs) statues that year. Right. But I mean, here we are. Like, listen to this list. That's what I mean. Like. To appreciate 71 takes a certain intellect. Mm-hmm. The big movie of 71 from both a critical and commercial standpoint was The French Connection. Hell yes. Not exactly light and fluffy. Wow. Number three at the box office for the year. Winner of the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor Gene Hackman, Best Adapted Screenplay for Ernest Tidyman, who also adapted his novel Shaft into a screenplay for the 71 film. Good-ass year for Ernest Tidyman. Mm-hmm. And Best Director for Hurricane Billy Friedkin, R.I.P. R.I.P. Alex, thoughts on the the French Connection? Who doesn't love the French Connection, right? I mean, it's funny to think about that film in relation to um, especially um, Little Murders and and um, Mm -hmm. and a New Leaf, like this sort of this sort of New York energy, hellscape um, energy, dark dark energy that you know that that typifies so many of the films that we've talked about here. I mean, that film is like the you know. The masterclass in that kind of early 70s dark energy. Yep. yep Beautiful. Definitely. Film. Definitely. The Academy was also wise enough that year to hand trophies to Jane Fonda for Clute and to Ben Johnson and Cloris Leachman for The Last Picture Show oh. and to the King Paddy Shayevsky for his original screenplay for The Hospital. All 1971's Palm d'Or went to Joseph Losey's The Go Between. Alex what was list. Was the uh, was the can jury right on, on that handoff? Oh yeah, come on. <laughs> and and I have to say Clute. Um Clute is Clute was one of my original films for my list. I love Clute so much and Jane Fonda in that film. It's an incredible, incredible. And again, you know, Donald Sutherland, this you know, he had this incredible year. You know, he had mm-hmm. Clute and then then this you know, again that incredible existential wedding scene in <laughs> um in Little Murders. What a year. But Clute Clute is is a perfect film in yeah. my mind. Yeah. I just like I'm the age that Jane Fonda was like the lady on the VHS tape doing the workout or whatever. The first time I saw Clute, that movie fucking blew my mind. I was like, oh, I see. That's why she's been famous for decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Where are we at on my list? I got messed up by Jane Fonda. Not the first, I'm sure. The Los Angeles Film Critics Association gave their best film prize to Claire's Knee. Good. And the New York Film Critics Circle gave theirs to A Clockwork Orange. Alex, uh, where do you land on A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, this um, I, I, this is going to sound flippant, and I, I would I, in in relation to my book on on rape film, I, I do not mean this flippantly. But 1971 was a big year for rape film. Mm. Um, between mm-hmm. Clockwork Orange and Straw Dogs, there was some mm-hmm. really challenging stuff going on. I, I really like Clockwork Orange, and I think that that scene is extraordinary. Um, I come out on the side that sees it as a very much as a critique mm-hmm. um, of the kind of spectacularization of rape mm-hmm. culture and rape on film, um, whereas, of course, the more traditional, certainly at the time, the more traditional kind of quote-unquote feminist position was that the film was kind of um, celebrating that kind of representation, whereas I right. see it more as a kind of par- parodic critique. So I think it's an amazing film. But yeah, 1971, 
big year for for sexual violence on film. Sure was. Number one movie at the box office for 1971 was Norman Jewison's screen adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof. Thankfully bereft of sexual violence. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) With... Billy Jack in second place. Second place. Okay, I watched Billy Jack for the first time this summer uh, after years of urging by my Uncle Dave. Shout out to Uncle Dave. Billy Jack is nuts. Billy Jack is like this. It's the strangest combination of like community theater and um, uh, (laughs) vigilante movie and small town corruption and... Uh, it's so strange, but it's it's incredibly compelling. Like you cannot turn that weird movie off. I don't know. I was I was sort of the whole time I was I was watching it. I was like, this was the number two movie at the box office in 1971. It's kind of mind blowing. Other big box office hits of 71 included Dirty Harry, Carnal Knowledge, and in tenth place, Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass. Song, which made $15.2 million on a $150,000 budget, in spite of being, as they put it in the ads, rated X by an all-white jury. One of the all-time <laughs> great ad lines, I swear to God. <laughs> we lost Mr. Van Peebles in 2021, and at risk of invoking a cliche, they really broke the mold with that guy. Yep. Sweet Sweetback and the aforementioned Shaft were such commercial hits with such a jaw-dropping return on investment that they kicked off the so-called black exploitation movement of the early 70s, which gave us a lot of controversy and a lot of great goddamn movies, too. Here, here. On February 8th of 1971, the Bob Dylan film Eat the Document premiered at the New York Academy of Music. It was shot by D.A. Pennebaker during Dylan and the Hawks' notorious 1966 tour, then re-edited by Dylan, then rejected by ABC, who initially commissioned it. It was never officially released, but it's actually not that hard to find on the internet if you know where to look. Indeed. And worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Shuffling uh, off our mortal coil in 1971, the third genius, Harold Lloyd. Here, here. He had a good run. Yep. The jaw-droppingly hot B.B. Daniels. Holy moly. The astonishingly macho Audrey Murphy. The slightly less macho, but still very macho Van Heflin. Mm-hmm. Goat composer Max Steiner and Tor Johnson, the hulking Swedish wrestler turned actor who appeared in both Plan 9 from Outer Space and The Beast of Yucca Flats. That is a career for you, baby. That's a bad movie legend, and that is your Hollywood Minute. It's the year. It's the year. I keep saying it's like everything is 1971. Is it a good film? Yes, it was made in 1971. Just you could. It's a safe guess. Alex, you ready to do a lightning round? All right, you know how it works. I'm going to feed you a list of titles pulled from John Willis's Screen World Film Manual from 1971. You can comment briefly on each or pass if you wish. And here we go. The Mephisto Waltz. I love it. I love it. Alan Alda is like Ian Curtis from Joy Division in a horror film. Perfect. Harold and Maude. Could not be made today. An, an immaculate film. Immaculate. Fassbender's had Fassbender had two movies out this year. Uh, Beware the Holy Whore and Witty. Two of my favorite Fassbender films. Um, I th- they're they're super strong. They're actually great. I think if you've not seen his stuff before, if you kind of want to get the gist of what he's doing, say what you will about Fassbender. He worked hard in his brief time with us. He sure as fuck did. Uh, <laughs> The great Dario Argento's Cat O' Nine Tales. 
amazing. One of the three animal trilogy films that really launched his career. <laughs> kind of the, the lesser considered one of the three, but I, I still think it's a great, great film. Carl Malden is a, a blind uh, – a crossword puzzle designer, I think. For yes, Patrick. correct. And amateur <laughs> sleuth. Uh, right. The great Ken Russell's The Devils. All Ken Russell films are perfect in my mind. <laughs> um, the, 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 I, I love him so deeply. The Devils, perhaps more perfect than most. Get Carter. A film I can watch so many times over and get something new each time. It gets darker and dirtier each time mm. I watch it. Probably my favorite mm-hmm. Michael Caine film. Mm, that's that's a fucking endorsement. Uh, Gene right. Wilder in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm Gen X. I was brought up on this shit, right? <laughs> like, it's just, I'm like biologically incapable of hating that film. Um, I think Gene Wilder had done better film. I don't think it's his, you know, it's his best film. Again, Rhinoceros that we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, but come on, you know, Gen X has got a Gen X. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite titles of the year, The Working Class Go to Heaven. The Elio, Elio I can never say his name, Elio Petri film. Mm. Really great. Like, I, I, you know, he, I think in recent years he started getting the, the attention that he deserves. Um, but there are still people discovering him, which I think is really exciting. I really envy yeah. people, the the joy of discovering his films. I really like um, Quiet Place in the Country, the Jalo mm. that he did with Franco Nero. Um, but Working Class Goes to Heaven is a really strong film. Blood on Satan's Claw. The classic folk horror. Um, I, that's one of these films that a lot of people that I knew kind of socially hadn't hadn't really heard of or didn't really know until they saw Kayla Janice's amazing documentary on folk horror, mm. uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Mm. And I really envy people envy people who are discovering blood on satan's claw now i wonder what it would be like to watch that film for the first time now it's it's beautiful let's scare jessica to death that's another book i always another film i always think of kayla she writes quite beautifully about that film in uh, in her earlier book um the house of psychotic women uh an amazing book by kayla janice that's an that's an incredible film and it's one of these like low budget indie american horror films um that just punches so hard above its weight. You know, I think I always think of it in relation to um, the Gloria Katz uh, co-directed, I've forgotten the gentleman's name, oh, uh, William uh, Hayek. William Hayek. Hayek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Messiah of Evil. Yes. Uh, I think of those two films together for these really beautifully ambient, beautifully spooky mm-hmm. kind of ethereal American Gothic horror films, incredible movies. Speaking of American Gothic horror films, The Velvet Vampire was released in 1971. I I, I love that film so much. I mean, it, it mm. looks amazing. It, it's mm. it's visually quite spectacular, but it's also quite funny. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it really gets the credit for being as funny as it is. Um, I, I think that Stephanie Rothman has a really sharp sense of humor that comes through in her films. Yep. And and yeah, The Velvet Vampire I think is is really. I mean, I always think of it as like a horror comedy film. I think it's very, very funny. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, from writer-director star Barbara Loden, Wanda was released in 1971. Really major film, like a really key film in in, in American film history. Um, there's a great book called um, Liberating Hollywood by uh, Maya Smolker. I'm going mm-hmm. from my memory there. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. But she, uh, th- this book is incredible if you've not come across it before. She talks about um, the role of women in, in New mm-hmm. Hollywood 
and Wanda obviously plays a really uh, key part in that in that history, uh, and, and in that book. Um, and I I know I I knew the film, but it was really only after reading Mayer's book, The Reading Hollywood, that I went back and really kind of really sort of appreciated it for what it was. It's a great no, film. That- that I think is one of these films where like the fact that it was has was picked up and championed by the Criterion Collection has really made a huge difference in increasing its visibility. It's such an incredible movie. Uh, and finally, closing out our lightning round, the big break for uh, a wonderful actress named Pam Greer, The Big Dollhouse. I love that film. So it's so much fun. It's so wild. And she looks like she's having the time of her life. Oh, God, yes. Like it's it's that classic kind of common energy right like it's it just sort of punches a little higher every single scene like can can we amp this up a little more <laughs> and and i mean film cameras were made for for performers like pam greer that's why yes. they were invented just yes. to kind of try to capture some of that magic incredible yes. Yes. All right. Unsurprisingly, you fucking crushed it on the lightning round. (laughs) Congratulations, Alex. Uh, Where can people follow you on social media and where can they read your work? Um, Well, I used to be on Twitter, but RIP, X, RIP. Um, I'm now on Blue Sky and I'm on Instagram and I am on the dreaded Facebook, although I don't really use (laughs) that much at all. Um, Blue Sky, if you're there, is probably what I use the most. But, yeah, otherwise Instagram, just Alexandra Helen Nicholas, you should be able to find me. Um, And I have a website called The Blue Lenses, which has uh, the details of all my books and other things that I get up to. Yay. Uh, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason-Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find under my lists the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people find you? I am at BrainwashLib on Twitter and Fifth Column Films on Blue Sky. And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please do us the favor of leaving a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are just an overabundance of movie podcasts out there, so your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for 1971? Well, our guest had the, uh, the absolute sack to come on the show and feature movies made by outsiders that didn't necessarily make her home country look uh, as good as the government would want mm-hmm. it to look. And so I am going to take that challenge on, and I'm going to I'm going to recommend Punishment Park by <laughs> uh, an English fella Perfect. who uh, came to the United States. You've seen this movie? Love it, love it. <laughs> came to the United States and made a movie about what a lot of people wanted to do to the hippies. Uh, and it is brutal and and part of why people got mad about it i guess is because it felt a little too real i mean Mm -hmm. we are sort of like actually doing this every day at the southern border right now uh very similar sort of things making people run through deserts with no water and shooting at them and just not giving a fuck but it's like it's a great movie and it is very much sort of dealing with it's a it's it's not a mockumentary like there's fucking nothing funny about it but it's a documentary style and and you know it is very much deep in the conversation between radical youth in America and their parents and their authority figures who did not understand a word they were saying and did not care and was not trying to listen um and it is one of it's a movie where they managed to have like real political you know, gen like on good, honest to life sort of political conversations back and forth that don't feel like 
high school kids yelling at each other out of, you know, because they just read Marx like yesterday for the first time. They, I can't imagine how much of this shit that they shot to be able to cut these scenes in a way that feels real. But they pulled it off, you know, and and but the really maybe the most surprising thing about the whole movie is that the the best actor and sort of the most memorable character is the main cop. Uh, once they get out in the desert, who oh. is one of the least sympathetic film characters ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, just couldn't give a, just could not, no sympathy whatsoever for these people that he's dealing with. Yeah. These fellow Americans that he's charged with caring for. Uh, and, and But he's very, very good and very compelling. It's a great movie. Yeah. Punishment Park. How about you, Bailey? Uh, I will first throw in one more plug for Born to Win, uh, which I'm sure I talked about in this slot the last time we did 1971 but if you pick up that fun city editions uh blu-ray of born to win you will hear mike and i doing an audio commentary on it that we're very proud of i'm going to talk today about the hired hand um which is an incredible acid western directed by and starring peter fonda this was part of that great program like after easy rider blew up where universal was just like fuck it i guess we got to make movies for kids now and so they they did this program (laughs) of sort of five youth oriented movies all for this like million dollars or so budget um and then the movies all came and they didn't know how the fuck to market them and they all sort of sank um but this is movies like tulane blacktop was what was in was part of that program and this film the hired hand written by the great alan sharp directed by peter fonda as i said and co-starring him and warren oates and verna bloom i saw this for the first time right at the beginning of lockdown and i don't know what it was about it that hit me so hard at that moment but it's just it's such a specific kind of like early 70s revisionist acid western peter fonda is incredible in it his he was a really gifted director who did not get enough opportunities to do that um i don't want to say anything more about it go go find the hired hand it's a a really incredible uh movie and it's also like 90 minutes long which like god bless him for that as well uh (laughs) thank you again alexandra thank you guys for having me thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening. It was a very good year.